I, um, I want to read you a passage in, where's my remote? Oh, it's over here. Okay. In, first, in, uh, in Genesis, we're going all the way back this morning. Um, it is in Genesis chapter 8, and it is about a guy named Noah. And if you don't know who he is, I'm sorry, but I don't have time to tell you. Um, uh, but I guarantee that you should look him up and read about him. He's fascinating. I'm sure there's some books in our children's library that you could literally walk and grab and take home today. Uh, this is, uh, well, you'll know when this is in the story of Noah in the ark, in the account of that. We're going to look in Genesis 8, 6 through 12. It says this, uh, At the end of 40 days, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made and sent forth a raven. It went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. Then he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground. But the dove found no place to set her foot, and she returned to him to the ark. For the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark with him. He waited another seven days, and again he sent forth the dove out of the ark. And the dove came back to him in the evening, and behold, in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. Then he waited another seven days and sent forth the dove, and she did not return to him anymore. Uh, this morning, we're talking about hope. As we, as we begin Advent, the season, as we prepare ourselves to celebrate the birth of Christ. And as we celebrate hope and talk about hope, we look naturally at what hope means in the Bible. And, and the word for hope, there's a lot of different words used in the ancient languages, in the, in the, in the languages that we read about in Scripture. And in the Hebrew, in the Old Testament, the most common word used for hope is used here in this passage several times. Uh, it's, it's used here when we see the word wait amongst a few others. And the word itself means, the word is yahal, and this is a Hebrew word, and what it means is, is to hope and expectation. So when we read the word wait, like here at the end, then he waited another seven days and sent forth the dove, and she did not return to him anymore. What we're reading is, then he hoped another seven days. Then he waited, yes, but he wasn't just passing time. So when, when you read uh, this account, it's one of the amazing things about the original language of Scripture is we read a word like wait, and we go, okay, fine, he, he waited. He literally couldn't do anything else. He just was passing time, right? Several times in that passage, we read about this sort of repetitive act of, 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 of Noah trying to uh, see if the waters is subsided by sending out birds and just kind of waiting. But he's not just waiting, if you translate it and look. He is, he's waiting with a sense of expectation of something that is going to come. He trusts and seems to believe that God is going to uh, allow the waters to subside that they will ultimately find dry land, and that they themselves will be able to live on even though everyone else has perished. Why in the world, as he's waiting, does he wait with expectation of this thing? Well, because of the, the back story, if you will. 
because of the things that God has done up until this point that have shown him that he isn't just waiting on God, he can hope in that God. Uh, this is the most commonly used uh, word in the Old Testament, this word yahal, for hope. It's translated to be hope amongst so many other things. And it is really uh, the best description of what we mean when we talk about what it is to hope. Hope is se- essentially that. It is waiting for the good to come. It is waiting for the good thing that will come. Hope, uh, we think about it in a lot of different ways um, as the object of what you wait for, but more than anything, it seems that, that in Scripture, when it's talked about, especially uh, when it's talked about in the Old Testament, there is this concept of just a whole lot of waiting. You can't hope without that, it seems. The idea of waiting is hard for us. The idea of hoping is hard for us. And um, we live in a world that isn't particularly overflowing with hopefulness or with hope in things. And the reason for that is because we live in a world that isn't particularly able to focus on things to be waiting expectantly for. Instead, we find ourselves, I would say, uh, living in a world in which the overwhelming feeling is one of hopelessness, not of hope. We live in a world filled with hopelessness. And yet, uh, it's not quite as like, like we think of hopelessness and despair and these things, and these, and these, and these, these sound like such dark words and ideas that it's hard for us sometimes to wrap our mind around or even to acknowledge and recognize the fact that that's actually the way that most people feel, right? It seems like, no, 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 I'm not sure if the whole world feels that way, if most people feel that way. And yet by the definition of what that is, to hope, which is to wait expectedly for something, do we live in a world filled with people who are waiting with a sense of expectation for something better to come? I don't think so, right? I don't think so. Instead, I think we find ourselves living in a world uh, surrounded by people and ourselves struggling to be people who uh, find it very difficult to have hope in very many things at all, especially when life has gotten hard, as it has right now. The majority of secular thinkers in the ancient world, they did not regard hope as a virtue, They regarded it as sort of a fleeting, temporary, sort of like whimsical kind of thing. Uh, To have hope wasn't really a a very admired trait to find in another person. It It kind of showed for, it kind of revealed that person to be somebody who was sort of foolish or shallow because they were interested in these things that secular people knew, that learned people knew. Like in Paul's time, for example, uh, was not something that we could really do, was hope in something. Uh, this is why Paul, when he describes the pagans, says very literally that they have no hope. He describes them as people without hope, and he's not saying that they're like depressed and crying all day and weeping and wailing. No, he is saying that they are a people who he says in the same passages are without God. He says because they're without God, They're ultimately a people without hope. And so a secular mind, a secular perspective, a secular world 
is ultimately one without hope because it has no God to hope in. The Bible makes a pretty big claim, which is that it makes sense to not hope in anything unless you hope in that which the Bible points us to. But the thing about hope is it's not just a matter of waiting. It's a matter of the object of the thing that we wait for. This is something else that we see about in the Bible. Because our, our expectation, the thing that we're waiting for, I mean, have you ever, have you ever like, known, like, you have the opportunity uh, to get something good, but you're not sure if you should take it because you think there might be something better down the road? And you go, well, you know, oh, this is maybe going to be tough, right? I have to decide if I'm going to, uh, if this is the best thing that's going to come along or if there is something better to come along because, oh, how, how terrible it would feel to realize that I hoped in the wrong thing, right, and something else better came. But imagine if you kept expecting for something better to come along and you said no to everything up until that point and then it never did. Oh, the regret that you would feel, Right? We all know what it is to be in that place, maybe in major ways, maybe in very small ways, but uh, waiting with a sense of expectation changes the way that you live. It's not just passive. It actually changes the way that you go about making decisions because of what you see out there ahead of you and say, no, hang on, because of that, this is going to be different. Why does the Bible claim to be the only ultimate source of hope? Because of where it points that hope to. We read about this in Psalm 42. The psalmist says, Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. For I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. So that waiting and expectation is all towards the object of what we're waiting for, the object of the hope. And what is that object in the Bible? It is the thing that can bring you salvation. The ultimate thing to hope in is the thing that can save you, the thing that can bring you salvation. Because anybody with their eyes open who's alive knows that salvation is the only thing that will bring hope. That keeping everything the way it is right now, forever, is not a hopeful thing, which means there's something wrong, there's something broken, there's something fundamentally breaking down, and no matter how hard we try, things don't seem to get fixed or get better as time goes by. There needs to be some kind of salvation, something to fix what's going on. Now, there's a lot of different ideas about what that is, but the Bible is really clear. The Bible says God is our salvation. And because of that, we have no reason to be downcast ultimately because we're assured of him. You see, hope is waiting expectantly, but it is also the biblical definition of hope is a person. The, 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 the Bible's uh, definition of hope, the thing that it points us to in terms of talking about hope is ultimately a person. It is hard to hope in a person. 
Uh, it is hard to hope in something. We live in a world filled with all these different perspectives, right? You got your, you got your optimists, right? You got your pessimists, okay? Then, you know, of course, you got your realists, right? So, that's me. I'm a realist. Uh, a, a realist is somebody who would say, uh, this is what happened last time and the time before and the time before, so why wouldn't it happen this time? That's how, like, a realist would defend their worldview, right? Um, a, a pessimist is, uh, a, a real true pessimist is somebody who actually probably simply finds it more painful to be disappointed by things in the end, to be let down by things, to be hurt by things, um, than anything else. And so a true pessimist is someone who probably will just constantly be trying to look at the negative side of things so as to not have to feel that again, right? Uh, it's like, why does this person want to focus so much on what's bad? Because they're like, because I'd rather focus on it now, right? They get caught off guard by it in the future, right? The optimist is the person who looks at circumstances and, and has a, a, a chosen outlook, a posture towards the circumstances of life that says, I believe that these things can turn out for good, and I want to approach them that way, right? I want to approach the circumstances of life as though they can turn out good. I have a friend, uh, we jokingly call him Optimist Prime because he is like the biggest optimist that we've ever met. And he's got the best argument for optimism that there is, and it is basically this, Hey, listen, if, if all of this uh, stuff that we've ever, if we believe in God and we serve a good God and he's a lot more powerful than anything that's ever happened or anything ever that has come along, then uh, really uh, none of what we've experienced up till now has to happen again. None of those things have to happen the way that the circumstances seem to point to. I mean, we believe in a God who's bigger than all those things. And so why can't we be optimistic and say, hey, it could be this way? Because with God, isn't that possible? And that's how I choose to live and how I choose to see these things. But the thing about looking at life these, these different ways is that they all are kind of relative. Because there's so much data out there, there's so much stuff happening, that you can simply choose to look at certain things and say, look, see, I can be optimistic, or you can always look at something else and say, look, see, that thing points us to negativity. But the fact is that in a world that does not hope and wait expectantly for something that will come, the absolute best that you can do is choose to be an optimistic person. The best that you can possibly choose is to say, I've decided that the glass is going to be half full, that I'm going to look at things well, because why not? You know, I'd rather just look at them that way, because that's literally the only thing that I can do. And the Bible is also very clear in how it defines hope, that our hope is not optimism. Hope is about choosing to trust that things will be better. And it's choosing to trust that even when the circumstances have given you no reason to feel that way. It's easier to be optimistic when things are looking up, when things are getting better. It's, uh, I, I, will, I will admit, 
Uh, it drives me crazy when I meet people who are optimists who have never had anything bad happen to them. Um, and I think, well, that must be, that must be. I've, I've talked with people before who are experiencing the first really bad thing. And, and they've, they've, they're describing to me as we talk the absolute disorienting feeling of like, whoa, my whole worldview is being shaken. Because up until now, I'm realizing I've just been an optimistic person because I honestly believed that bad things wouldn't happen to me. I never really thought much about why. Why would I, right? I was just enjoying the ride. And now that something has, I'm realizing that the way I've been approaching life has been, has been optimism. It hasn't been hope the way the Bible describes it. But how do you do this? How do you, how do you actually look ahead and say, I believe and I will wait expectantly that things will be better even when they aren't, even when they aren't looking that way now? That I will trust in who God is in this person, because in the Bible, hope is always found in a person, the Savior, the one that brings our salvation, even when things are going badly, have gone badly for now. You trust the reason the Bible gives, the reason people in the Bible trust is not because of what is happening now. It is because of what God has done up till now. Someone says, why do you hope in God? The answer in the Bible is not because look at how great things are, because look at how great my life is, because look at how great everything's turning out. This is what it looks like to follow Jesus. When someone says, why do you hope in God? The answer is, because of what God has done. And so by bringing ourselves back to the things that God has done, the things that God has said, the ways that God has shown himself, we have confidence for what it is that God will do and who God will ultimately be as our salvation. We build monuments. We record stuff down in journals. We sing songs and we tell stories. And above all else, we read and reread again and again Scripture that tells us about who God is and about what He has done. And we see how many people God has been faithful to, and we see how many people have been able to find their hope in him even when they died while the circumstances were hard, and they hadn't seen that hope come to fruition completely. Hopelessness is a hard thing to live with and to experience, and I don't think that it hits a person all at once. I don't think hopelessness hits you in this clear, decisive way. I think it grows over time as the things that we find joy in, and therefore, unfortunately, start to find our hope in, as those things start to fade away more and more in our lives, we find the hopelessness begin to creep in. 
I just think that we sometimes have this overly simplified view of it. We, we think, oh, you find your hope in this thing, and then it goes away, and then you're a hopeless person. But what I think happens instead, it's less like a person standing on the edge of a cliff that all of a sudden crumbles away beneath them instantly, sending them into the sort of the abyss beneath them of hopelessness. But rather, it's more gradual. It is slower. It's... It's a lot more like being in a room filled with people that you love and find joy in and then not really realizing it as those people just begin to leave one after another until you're left in the room all alone and you realize that you never want to be alone and you realize that those people aren't coming back. That is how hopelessness creeps up on people. It happens throughout life as the things that we were looking forward to, they show us how transient and temporary they are. How the things that we really had put our confidence in, uh, we start to see the holes in those things and how inadequate they are. Or we just get smarter and we realize that's just not something that I can ultimately hope in. Or for many, it's that we get the thing that we hope for. And then we realize very quickly that it wasn't at all something that would save us, something that would give us the kind of joy that we thought we would find in this thing. But for so many, even though we, are, we have the opportunity to hope, to wait expect, with a sense of expectation in what will come and who will save us and who, what we know has been promised to us and live as those people, many of us live with hopelessness. And we look for something that will give that to us. All definitions of hope point to something. They point to something that is ahead of us, the cure that is going to heal us, the leader who is going to unite us, the philosophy that is going to finally inspire us, the technology that is going to make life possible, finally, the planet that we're going to go to next, the job that will finally make things work out, the home that will finally be a permanent one, the child that will finally make us a family the recognition and the approval and the acknowledgement that will finally show me that I matter at all. The, the rest that will, enough, that will be enough to make us finally feel full and okay. The, the, the sort of circumstances that will stop the chaos that are going on in our lives, the outlook that will maybe end the depression that is plaguing our lives, the fun that will make me happy again. These are all the things that we find hope in because hope is ultimately always going to be found in a thing. And the Bible says hope will never be given or found in a thing. It will always be in a person. 
In the Old Testament, it continually points us to God himself. More than anything else, the Old Testament hope is aimed at God. Hope is found in God. Often it's because he's hiding his face from his people and they're experiencing life without him as a punishment for them and their, and their, and their wickedness or their disobedience. But oftentimes it is a, it is a pointing to the future in which uh, Jesus will come and hope will be fulfilled in something that is even greater. But hope is always in a person when we read about it in the Bible. Our hope is in a person, and it is not just optimism. There's another word that is used almost as much as this word kavah that we talked about that is really the most common one that's used in the Bible for hope. And, uh, or, no, that wasn't kavah, it was the other word. It was, it was yahal, sorry. The next word, believe it or not, is a word called kavah. Our hope is not optimism. The second most common word used in the Old Testament for hope is this word kavah, which means, again, to wait or to endure. Uh, you read about this in Micah, uh, amongst like tons of other places. Then the remnant of Jacob shall be in the midst of many peoples like a dew from the Lord, like showers on the grass, which delay not for a man nor wait for the children of man. So this type of hope is one that you see used a lot when it's talking about like farming and growing things. Basically any time that an investment has been made into something and they're now expecting a thing that is completely a normal thing to expect. Either because it's something that they themselves as a farmer, uh, the, the prophets speak a lot with this word kavah of like a farmer who planted a vineyard and now waits for the fruit to grow. Or somebody who simply waits for the dew to come in the morning because they know it's going to come. They know how predictable it's going to be. It's not an unusual thing. Kavah points to this kind of endurance that comes after the work often has even been put in and you're now waiting for the thing that you expect to come. Okay, here's where it gets interesting if you are me and probably nobody else. Uh, kavah comes from a word kav, and that word translated means a cord or a strand of rope. An example of this word is in Joshua when uh, they say, Behold, when we come into the land, you shall tie this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down, and you shall gather into your house your father and mother, your brothers and all of your father's household. They're talking about how to save this woman who has helped them enter into the promised land, and they, they use this word, kav, to just describe that you're going to use this cord, and it's going to lower us down, right? So it means a cord, a strand, a rope. Why on earth would a word that means a rope or a cord or some kind of a strand, why on earth would that word turn into the word for hope? Well, I'm glad that you asked because uh, I think it's so interesting because that word, uh, that rope or that cord or that strand ultimately gets pulled and it gets tightened and it gets stretched. And when that happens, there is something that it creates. It creates a state of tension. And when a cord is pulled and it's creating a state of tension that ultimately is going to have to be released and something is going to have to happen, that word, the word for that state of tension that's created is kavah, 
the word that we use for hope in the Old Testament. The second most common word for hope in the Old Testament is a word that literally translated means a state of tension that is produced when something is like pulled or strained and waiting to be released. As we're homeschooling our kids right now, uh, we're teaching, we're talking about, um, about energy and about the forms of energy. And I was talking to my kids about the forms of energy. I, I think they create new ones, too, because depending on what you look at, there's like three forms of energy, there's 11 forms of energy, there's eight forms of energy. And uh, we're talking about all the forms of energy, and I made one of the biggest mistakes of my life when I uh, thought any time that I'm like trying to do something with my kids and my brain goes, oh, you know, they would, you know, it would be really fun, I have to stop and go, are you saying this to yourself because you're like a kid right now? Because if so, you shouldn't do it, right? Because they don't need a kid right now telling, coming up with more kid ideas for them. Well, I thought, you know, it'd be funny. I'm going to, I was talking to them about um, something called potential energy. And I was like, here, guys, this is super easy, right? If you each grab a rubber band on one end of a rubber band, and you pull that thing as tight as it'll go, right? That's called potential energy. And I was like, I mean, nothing is going to show them more, like what, how that works, right? I was like, you guys used all your energy to pull that thing. No, they didn't. But you guys put some energy into pulling that thing apart. And now it's stretched. And now it's stretched. That thing is loaded up with energy. And now it is going to release. And that energy is going to go somewhere, okay? Ever since... I showed my kids that, which like, it, they, it, the, the funniest thing is like watching them realize what's now happened, is like we're both holding this thing, oh my gosh, I can't believe it, I have that, wait, hold on, they're going to do it to me, I'm gonna, I don't know what to do, I don't, I'm going to do it to them, either way, someone snaps someone, it ends up in a really bad situation, but I'm telling you the number of times that I have now heard this phrase in my house, hey dad, is this potential energy? Like, I have heard that phrase so many times, and it, like, gives me chills, okay? Because I turn around, and something has been stretched, something has been pulled, some situation has been created in which my kids are like, hey, Dad, is this potential energy? And it's like, no, why did I do this? Why did I teach my kids this? My kids are so good at knowing about potential energy. The other, yesterday, two days ago, we finally introduced our kids to the uh, to the, to the, Matt was telling me that he and his kids watched Home Alone. And I was saying, like, man, I want to watch Home Alone with my kids, except my kids get kind of freaked out sometimes that we're going to, like, forget them places. Uh, they just randomly will get worried about that. And so I was like, maybe that wouldn't be a good movie to show my kids because they, the kid literally gets forgotten, you know? But I kind of prepped them for it, and then we watched Home Alone. Man, did my kids love that movie. Um, that movie is probably one of the best illustrations of potential energy that you're ever going to find. Because you've got this little kid who's home alone. I'm going to ruin home alone for you guys. Sorry. Okay, I'm sorry. But, you know, if you haven't seen it, it's not on me. Okay, I'm going to ruin home alone for you. This kid is home alone. And, yeah, there you go. What, that's amazing. And he's got these two robbers that are going to break into his house. These guys are bigger than him. These guys are stronger than him. These guys are faster than him. These guys are kind of smarter, at least in the sense that they probably know how to beat up a kid and kidnap him and rob a house, right? Beyond that, they're not too smart. But he knows that in every way, these guys kind of have him beat, and yet he decides, I want to stand my ground and I want to protect my home from these robbers who are coming. Uh, and so he decides to plan ahead. And he puts together this whole plan, and basically his entire plan is built, for the most part, around gravity. That's basically it. 
he basically uses gravity to his advantage because it turns out the bigger they are, the harder they will fall, or the taller the house is, the bigger and taller and nicer the house is, uh, the further something will fall, right? And so they are slipping on ice, they are falling on stairs, and they're messing themselves up so badly. And when they're on the bottom floors of the house, things are falling on them. An iron is falling on someone's head that the kid lifted up to the top of the laundry chute. They step on the nail as they're walking up the stairs. Oh, the glory that is the paint cans in this movie, right? Um, uh, the paint cans. There's, there's nothing like it. Um, I was going to show you guys the picture that Ellie sent me of like my kids watching Home Alone, but I won't because they're just so happy and it's probably, you know, whatever. But my kids love those paint cans, right? He gets these two heavy paint cans, he carries them upstairs, he ties them to ropes, and he waits with them, right? As these guys get further up into the house, he then makes a big puts a big rope outside, and he gets these guys to climb out on the rope, and then all of a sudden they're at the top of the house, they're at the highest point of the house, and now he uses gravity to his advantage, uh, and you can leave that up to your imagination and how he gets these guys down. But the way that he defeats them is ultimately this idea of potential energy. He basically puts in all the work before they show up, knowing that they're going to put in all the work while they're there. They're just going to try to overpower him at every step they can. And so he's got to plan everything out ahead of time so that all he has to do is let nature take its course. Let the thing fall. Let it swing. Let them fall. Cut the rope. That's what happens, right? This word for tension, this idea of tension, perfectly describes what it feels like to be someone who is hoping in hard times. For us to choose to be people who hope when the circumstances are not easy produces in our lives tension and strain. We are stretched and we are pulled and there is this release that it feels like needs to come. Either I give up hope, I stop hoping, I let, I let go of this hope, or this thing needs to come, it needs to happen, and this situation needs to end. Whatever happens, I know that the way I feel right now is strained and it is pulled and it is not easy. This is what hope does. Hope brings tension to us and it brings strain to us. The bow is pulled back, the trap is set, the cord is drawn, and things are ready. It is hard to live intention. It is hard to live in strain. When we celebrate hope, and when we say that our hope as a people is ultimately in Christ himself, that it is ultimately in God himself, we have something that we look forward to with a sense of expectation. In a world where people do not have that. In a world filled with people who, as we grow older, just have to find ways to accept that there will be nothing that will save us. There is nothing that we can ultimately hope in. That when the disease comes, that we say, oh, I hope, knowing that there will be an end to disease. That when the financial wreckage comes, that we say, oh, I hope knowing that there will be an end to finances. 
that when death itself comes, the thing that robs people of hope more than any other thing, to be a people who say, oh, I hope in the knowledge of the fact that death is not going to win, but that death has been conquered, that ultimately I hope beyond that. I have talked to so many people who have lived with physical disabilities throughout their lives. And as a result of that, have had this constant reminder of what it's like to hope in a time where they will be given a new body. They will be given a new life in that way, a way that most people don't think of. Most people think, I am just fine with the way I am and maybe the way things are. There's something about suffering. There's something about pain and the tension that comes that is a reminder to us of the very need for salvation. So what then do a people like us do when we're called to hope because of what God has done in who God is and that strains and pulls us? We feel the tension of that thing. What does God tell us? Does he say, I will take away the tension? I will solve the problem that you're dealing with? No. In the Bible, the solution each time is God saying to his people, what you will receive from me without fail in your strain, in your tension, in the weakness when the rope is beginning to fray and you feel like it might snap, is you will receive from me strength. This word, kava, probably my favorite place in the Bible, the state of tension where it is used is in Isaiah 40. But they who kava, who wait for the Lord, they who wait for the Lord with tension and strain and suffering shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. This is not describing how when a person becomes a Christian, they now have endless energy. They now can fly, literally. That is not what this is describing. This is saying that those who trust in the Lord, who wait for the Lord, who is it in this passage that will have their strength renewed? Who is it who will mount up with wings like eagles? Who is it that will get to run and not grow weary? It is those who wait on the Lord. That despite the tension and the strain and the weakness and the pain, that we are promised these things, that God will continue to renew us and strengthen us because we are a people who wait upon him. This is what we celebrate right now in Advent. We celebrate and are reminded of the fact that we, above all else, are a people who are defined as a people of hope, a living hope. Living hope meaning it affects your life right now the way that you wait for the thing that will come. It affects your life right now the thing that you look to for your salvation to come. And because you're looking to that thing, 
that doesn't actually make you a person who's checked out of everything in life. It doesn't make you a person who doesn't care about the things that go on. And it turns out, even though that might not be why you got in it in the first place, it doesn't end up making things a lot easier along the way. That we're a people who hope in a way that changes the way we live now, and that even though that brings tension and even though that brings pain, we are people who are renewed by God. He says to us, his children, I will give you strength. I will give you peace. I will renew you day by day. Wait on me, says the Lord. Look to what I have done in the past and be reminded of that. I'm not just talking about in the Bible. We do this. We need to do this. We come here. We're here right now. We're here. We do this. We, we look to the things God has done in our own lives, in our own families, in our own church in the past, and we say, that is how I know that God will be faithful moving forward. What it means to be a people of hope is to be a people who are renewed because of that. Let's pray. Father, um, there are so many sort of hallmark greeting card ways of looking at this idea of hoping, finding hope in you, of, 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 of trusting. We, we think of these sort of empty encouragements that we often are given by people when life is difficult. And yet, God, uh, the Bible the people of the Old and the New Testament, Lord, they had a huge understanding of what it meant to hope. We know that hope is needed for human flourishing. We know it's needed for us as people to thrive in any way. And we know that you're the only source of it, God. Father, um, before we even think about offering this hope to others, we need to be people who see it in our own lives and who really live and rely on it, God. Lord, for those who are here, who are beat down, who are discouraged, who are suffering, who feel the tension right now, especially at a time of year that we are fully expecting to not be feeling bad things, God, would you remind us that you lift us up on wings of eagles, that you help us run and not grow weary, that you give us strength, God, that it is in you that we find our life, Lord. That is why we worship you. That is why we sing to you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.